All right, so we are beginning tonight a study of uh, the book of First and Second Kings, and you might be wondering, why on earth are we studying First and Second Kings? If you've ever tried to read those books, you might have found them a little hard to get through. It, it's kind of a dry history lesson, at least that's the way it seems at first. Um, you grew up, if you grew up in church, you grew up with the stories in Genesis and Exodus and and. Joshua and Judges, but these stories, it's just one king comes along and he does this and that and he dies and his son comes along and so forth. And you think, well, that doesn't seem very relevant to our lives. It's also uh, not the happiest book. I'll just spoil it for you. If you're hoping for a happy ending, you're not going to get it in First and Second Kings. Uh, in fact, the ending of that book, of those books, is about as bad an ending as you can imagine. So why read it? Why study it? Why? I mean, I, I know you know the answer because it's in the Bible, but why would we focus on it from now until May? That's my plan. I'll give you, there's a lot of reasons, but let me give you three before we dive in. Now, the first one is because it, it helps tie the, the scriptures together and helps us to understand the rest of the Bible. Um, for instance, if you read the Old Testament, if you read the New Testament, you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the life of Jesus. You can't fully understand it without understanding the world that Jesus grew up in. And in order to understand the world Jesus grew up in, you have to understand things like why the temple is so important and why it's so important that people are calling him the son of David. What was the promise that was made that that, that, that uh, title is supposed to fulfill? Uh, where do these people, the Pharisees and Sadducees, come from? And why are they so passionate about these different issues? And uh, What about the prophets? If you read the whole prophetic part of the Old Testament, almost all of those guys prophesied during the time period we're studying. And you can't understand a word they're saying unless you know what they're talking about, unless you know the, the, the circumstances they came from. And most of all, there's the exile. There, I'll, again, I'll spoil it for you. The story ends with Israel losing everything and being carted away to a foreign land. And that is a formative event in the history of the people of God. So Jesus grew up in a world where everybody thought back to that. Of course, they weren't alive then, but they, they told stories about yeah, when our ancestors lived in Babylon, and then when they came home, and then when they rebuilt the temple, and all those things, you have to understand if you really want to grasp the things Jesus did and said and why. There's a second reason. Because it shows us the importance of character in our leaders. The book of First and Second Kings, it is. It's a list of the different rulers of Judah and Israel and what they did, right and wrong. And what you find out is, when a nation has a, a, a leader who is a man of character, a woman of character, it is good for that nation. And when the character of the leader is weak, the nation suffers. Now, sometimes not economically or militarily. Sometimes outwardly, an unrighteous ruler can seem successful, but the ultimate impact of their ruling is always negative. And you'll see this in this book. Part of why I chose this and y'all know me by now that I'm not, I don't do partisan politics from the pulpit, but part of why I chose this was I was thinking, well, what, what study should I do during an election year? And I thought, first and second kings. It's important for us to remember when we go to the polls, I mean, character matters. Character of our leaders matters, and we should, we should pay attention to that. The third reason is, and kind of in contrast to that second reason, no matter who's on the throne, God is still king. 
That's what we see in First and Second Kings. Because yes, sometimes the rulers of Judah and Israel are righteous. More often, they're not. And sometimes the people thrive and prosper, and sometimes they suffer. But in spite of all of that, God still accomplishes his will. In spite of all the mistakes that the rulers of Israel make that we're going to study over the next several months, Jesus still came out of Israel and still died for our sins, still ransomed humanity, still rose from the grave. Nothing can stop the plans of God. And that ought to give us a sense of peace. If you are worried about the state of our nation, if you're worried about who's going to win in November, just remember that stuff is important. But no matter what happens then, God's still on his throne. God is still going to accomplish his will, and it doesn't change our mission as God's people. So those are my three reasons. You can probably find others uh, but that's why I wanted us to study First and Second Kings. Let's just dive on in to First Kings chapter one, verse one. Now King David was old and advanced in years, and although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. Therefore his servants said to him, "Let a young woman be sought for my lord the king, and let her wait on the king and be in his service. Let her lie in your arms, that the lord, my lord the king may be warm." So they sought for a beautiful young woman throughout the, all the territory of Israel and found Abishag the Shunammite and brought her to the king. The young woman was very beautiful and was of service to the king and attended to him, but the king knew her not. Y'all know what that means, right? Go ask your mom if you don't. Okay. Um, verse 5. Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. His father had never at any time displeased him by asking, why have you done this? And so he was also a very handsome man and he was born next after Absalom. Okay, can we agree that's a really weird way for a book to begin? But there's a reason why it begins this way. See, little known fact the whoever, whatever scribe, we don't know who wrote First and Second Kings. Some scribe, some man of God, the Holy Spirit entered into them, inspired them to write these events down. They didn't actually write First and Second Kings. They actually wrote First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. That was all one long document. And somewhere in the time between when it was written and when Jesus was born, some group of rabbis said, "Let's break this up into four books." So what you're reading could just as easily be the last two chapters of 2 Samuel. This is the end of the story of David. The first two chapters of 1 Kings are the end of the story of David, king of Israel. That's why it begins this way. God didn't divide it up this way. Men did. So what's up with David here? David is an old man. But you know what? He's not really that old. He's only 70. Now, when I was a kid, that seemed ancient, but it doesn't seem old at all now. And I know lots of people way past 70 who are quite vibrant and active. And here's David just shivering in his bed and, and unable to even warm himself. So what's going on here? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us, but think about the fact, if you know anything about David, you know he'd, he'd had four jobs in his life. He'd been a shepherd, a warrior, a fugitive, if you can call that a job, and a king. And those are four very stressful lines of work. That has to age a man. On top of the fact that after his big sin with Bathsheba and Uriah, which I probably don't have to tell you about, everything sort of fell apart in his life. His family, his nation, 
He even lost his throne for a while. We'll talk about that later. All of these events had to have stressed him, had to have aged him prematurely. So here he is struggling. And the, the elders of Israel came up with this plan to find this nice young woman to warm his bed. I, I, this always makes me laugh because um, when I was in seminary, one of my very good friends, this guy named Rusty, was a single guy. He's married now, has kids, but back in those days in our mid-20s, he was still single. And I remember him coming back from Christmas break and saying, I, I visited with my grandpa, and you know he's a widower. And he said to me, you know what, Rusty, I saw this thing in the Bible about how David couldn't keep warm, so they found a beautiful young woman to lie with him. And, and Rusty said, hold on, Grandpa. If there's any beautiful young women around here, you need to send them to me. I don't have a wife. You've already had one. I always think of Rusty when I read this, because it's such a, to us, it seems like such an odd story. But that's the world in which uh, this society lived. And I'm going to say this later. I plan to say this later. But I'm going to say it now, just so you know. Many things in the historical parts of the Bible, like this, they're descriptive, not prescriptive. In other words, they're just telling you this is what happened. They're not saying whether it was right, wrong, good, bad. God trusts us to look at the commands of Scripture and to judge the characters of Scripture based on those commands. So when we see a, a character in Scripture do something, we think, wow, I thought he was a good guy. Why is he doing bad things? Well, because he's a sinner. Everything he does is not something we should do. All that to say, if you're an older man and you can't get warm at night, this is not a prescription for you. <laughs> Buy a heating blanket and be happy. So, the main thing I want you to see is, is what starts in verse 5. Adonijah, the son of Haggith, is David's fourth son. The first son was Amnon. The third son was Absalom. They're both dead now. The second son was a guy named Kiliab. We don't know anything about him other than his name. So either he's passed away by now or he's just not interested in the throne. But Adonijah says, okay, my dad is a little bit out of it now. He's not as strong as he once was. He doesn't even get out of bed anymore. Now's the time for me to make my move. That's, I think, why the book tells us this detail about David's infirmity. It wants us to see that Adonijah's motive was, I think I can take advantage of an opportunity. And, and, and here, it may be in your notes. I think I put it in your notes. But uh, the New American Commentary says something that I loved. I, I quoted it for you. Good looks and favored status combined with parental indulgence rarely produce good character. <laughs> So here's Adonijah. He's the son of a king. He's got natural leadership abilities. He's a good-looking dude. And his dad has always spoiled him, has never corrected him once. That's not going to produce good character. He's not going to be a good king. Ambition, attractiveness, opportunity, none of those are things that make you a good leader. Adonijah is not the man for the job. God's already made known who the man for the job is, and that is Solomon. Adonijah is trying to bypass that. 
He's trying to claim this for himself. So what he does is he, has, he throws this big banquet. He invites all the, all the ruling people, all the high-class people of Jerusalem, the nobles, the people with political pull and power, and all of his brothers except Solomon. And at this banquet, he plans to say, I'm the king, swear loyalty to me, and then it will be so. So here's where Nathan and Bathsheba spring into action. I'm I'm summing things up, so we're not going to read all of this. I'm just summing this up for you. Nathan is the prophet. He finds out about this. He goes to Bathsheba, Solomon's mother. He says, do you know about this? And she says, nope, it's news to me. We always think of Bathsheba as kind of a, a passive figure, but here she springs into action. Together, the two of them go to David, to his bedroom, where he can't get out of bed, right? And they tell him one after the other, here's what your son Adonijah is doing. He's cutting Solomon out, who you promised, based on the will of God, would be the next king. He's bypassing that. Are you going to let this happen? And David then shows that while his body is physically weak, his mind is still sharp. And he says, here's the plan. Take Solomon, put him on my mule. That's a sign, by the way. That's That's essentially saying, give him the keys to my car. When they see him driving my car, they'll know I've endorsed him. Put him on my mule. By the way, why isn't Solomon here arguing for himself? I suspect it's because he's so young. We don't know how old Solomon was, but he was probably a young, inexperienced guy. So his mom went to speak for him. David says, put him on his mule to have him ride down to the Gihon Spring. Gihon Spring is the one natural body of water in the whole region of Jerusalem. That's the whole reason that that city exists. Go down to the Gihon Spring, the whole city will gather, have the high priest Zadok come and anoint him with oil and proclaim him king, and then everyone will cheer. And that's exactly what happens. So I want you to picture this. Here's Adonijah, and his plan is working to perfection. Everybody has has answered his invitation. They're all feasting, and they're they're all drinking wine, and they're just having a great time, and pretty soon he's going to stand up and ask everybody to swear loyalty loyalty to him. It's the best day of his life, and all of a sudden they hear this loud cheer from somewhere else in the city, from down by the spring. And they say, what's going on? And a man comes running in. Jonathan, the son of Abiathar, comes running in and says, hey, did you know that right now your brother Solomon is being anointed king by the high priest and the whole city's there and they're all cheering and they're all proclaiming him king. So look what happens next. Just picture this in your mind. First Kings 1 49, it says, Then all the guests of Adonijah trembled and rose and each went to his own way. Yeah, that'll break up a party real quick when you realize, oh, if, if the king finds out I was here, I am, my name is Mud. And suddenly Adonijah is sitting there with a bunch of dirty dishes. Verse 50 says, Adonijah feared Solomon, so he arose and went and took hold of the horns of the altar. Adonijah's great plan has backfired, and now he's afraid he's going to die. The altar was this uh, bronze, uh, not very large, this bronze box or grill that that sat outside the tabernacle. The tabernacle contained the ark of God, that's where the priests did their work. But the offerings were, were offered at the, at, the, at the altar, which sat outside the tent. And it had these little horns that came out of all four corners. Uh, not really horns like you would see on a cow, but just points, you might say. So Adonijah says, I'm going to go there and grab hold of those because I don't think he'd kill me at the altar of God. And they tell Solomon, the new king, hey, your brother's down there grabbing hold of the horns of the altar. And he says, tell him to get up. I'm not going to do anything to him as long as he behaves himself 
we're going to be all right. So let's move on to chapter two. When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon his son, saying, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Which, by the way, I love that phrase. Everybody dies, David says. It's about to happen to me. He says, be strong and show yourself a man and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn that the Lord may establish his word he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart, with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. So David starts, these are his last words, basically. This is him uh, investing in his son, preparing his son to rule. And the first two things he says are perfect. Follow the Lord. Character matters, son. The people need a king who is a good man, a godly man, a righteous man. So follow the law of God. It's all written out for you. All you have to do is, is do what God says and you're going to be fine. And the second thing he says is, remember, God made a covenant with us. So for those of you who don't know, 2 Samuel tells the story of when David was king and all his enemies had been defeated, he said, I just feel guilty. I was a shepherd boy, now I live in a palace but the ark of God is still in a tent. Since the days of Moses, the ark of God, the, the worship center of Israel had been a tent. He says, that's not right. I, I wanna build, if I've got a palace, I wanna build a palace for the Lord. I wanna build a temple. And God sent Nathan to say to him, it's not your job to build my temple. You're a man of blood, your son will do it. He'll be a man of peace. But God says, I love that you wanna do this for me. So here's the promise I will make, the, make to you. The promise is, as long as your sons obey me, as long as your sons are faithful to me, they will always reign. You will have a dynasty that never ends. Now, that's something that no king had, had been promised ever by God. And in fact, as Christians, the, the really exciting thing is, we know that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of that covenant. That when Jesus comes along, he is the ultimate son of David who will reign forever. But David doesn't know that. What David knows is, my son Solomon is just a kid. I really haven't done a very good job of being a dad to him because let's face it, David was a great man, but a, not a very good father. I, I need to let him know. Listen, God has made a covenant with us. You have an opportunity to carry on this dynasty and, and, and guarantee that our family will continue to sit on this throne and the people will continue to follow God. So, so far, great counsel from David. Now, we're not going to read this next part. But it starts to get dark because David then says, now let me tell you about some guys who are going to cause you trouble. So I want you to take care of them. I want you to get rid of them before they cause you any pain. And he names several. He names uh, Joab. Joab was the general who was the leader of David's army. Very loyal, fierce warrior, but a, a loose cannon. He kind of took things into his own hands often. He, he killed some people that he shouldn't have. And David wanted to distance himself from that. David's worried. He's like, this guy caused me enough trouble and I'm, I'm an experienced man. I, I don't want my young son to have to put up with him. So he says, you make sure Joab goes down to his grave with blood. And then he says, and the same with Shimei. Shimei is this guy who's a man of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, the reason that's important is the king before David was Saul, who was from Benjamin. And ever since Saul died in battle and David became king instead of one of Saul's sons, the whole tribe of Benjamin's been angry about it. 
And they've been fussing at David, this guy Shimei especially. He's the ringleader of all of that. When David had to flee the throne because his son Absalom had had displaced him for a while, Shimei met him on the road and said, this is all what you deserve because you don't deserve to be king. And David at the time didn't do anything. But he says, now, I don't want him causing any trouble for you. Bring his gray head down to the grave in blood. He also mentions Abiathar, who was the priest. He says, don't kill Abiathar. He carried the ark, but he hasn't been true to us. He sided with your brother. So just take take his priestly duties away from him and send him off to retirement. And Solomon does all those things. In fact, there's this guy in the story of 1 and 2 Samuel. By the way, sidebar. If there's no part of the Bible that's more cinematic than First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. You could make a movie out of it easily. Such so many characters and so much complexity. Benaniah, Benaniah is the guy I'm t- talking about. One of David's fiercest warriors, a guy who killed a lion with his bare hands in a snowy pit. He's loyal to David. Solomon says, Benaniah, go kill these people for me. See, First Kings two. Maybe I watched too many movies. It starts to sound less like the Bible and more like the Godfather. Where it's, you know, Michael Corleone is wiping out all of his family's enemies as he takes the takes over the family business. And Benaniah is your Luca Brazzi, right? He goes out and he, he just takes these guys out. And then, and then Adonijah, the guy who wanted to be king, he messes up. Remember, Solomon said, you and I are fine as long as you behave yourself. So what does Adonijah do? He goes to Bathsheba. And he says, you know, I should be king, but I'm not. I think we both know that. But, uh, you know, to make up for it, why don't, you, uh, why don't you ask the king if I can marry Abishag the Shunammite, you know, that, that beautiful young woman that used to minister to our father. And this is not, by the way, this is not just a guy saying, well, she looks good. I want her as my wife. This is him saying, that's my dad's last concubine. If I marry her, then the country will see me as his successor. This is a play for power behind the scenes. So when Bathsheba tells that to Solomon, he says, well, that's it for for, uh, Adonijah. And he sends sends, uh, Benaniah after him. And down goes Adonijah. What do we think about all this? This is pretty brutal stuff. Remember, this is descriptive, not prescriptive. If we, you can look at it from a political standpoint and say, well, it was probably pretty smart to get rid of people who were causing trouble and who were competitors for the throne. But when you compare the actions of David and Solomon to Jesus, you go, mm, this is not right. So this is a stain on the legacy of David, and this is not a good start for Solomon, at least not from the standpoint of righteousness and character. But things are about to change. Chapter three, here's the part you've probably heard. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David, his father. Only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. Just side note, that comes up a lot in the Old Testament. The pagans used to have these shrines up in the the hills and the mountains. The Israelites, they would build high places too. And it was partially because there wasn't a central place to worship. So the fact that Solomon would offer at the high places wasn't ideal because even though he was offering to God, he wasn't offering at the tabernacle. That's what's going on here. Verse four, and the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there. 
for that was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness and righteousness and an uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, Because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right. Behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I will give you a, a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has, has been before and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. So God is pleased and Solomon is rewarded, and everything God promises here comes true. Next week, we'll look at kind of the glory of Solomon, and then the third week, we'll look at his downfall. But here's what I want you to see. Solomon is given the chance of a lifetime. I don't know of anybody else that God has come to and said, ask me for anything. Solomon has this chance, and he asks for wisdom. He bases that request on two things. He says, first of all, I'm just a little child. I don't think he's talking about his chronological age so much as he's saying, I don't know what to do. This is, the, I don't have any experience as a ruler. Um, I need your help. And the second reason is, this is a huge responsibility. This is a massive responsibility. Again, like I said earlier, I pray for wisdom all the time uh, because, and I'm not even king of anything. I'm just, I mean, Jesus is the king of the church. I'm just the under-shepherd, and I feel that responsibility. I can only imagine being king, not just of a nation, but of the people of God. God's representative on earth was the nation of Israel. That's a huge responsibility. So here's what he prays. Literally, he prays for an understanding mind, which literally means a listening or obedient heart. A listening, obedient heart. What he's saying is, Lord, in every decision, I want to know your will and have a heart that's inclined toward obedience. Can you see why God was pleased with that request? He knew, as long as I'm seeking the will of God genuinely, not, not seeking my own will and trying to baptize it and make it God's will, that's the mistake we often make, but genuinely seeking God's will, I will always make the right decision and the people will be blessed. I'll always know the difference between good and evil and the nation will prosper and the world will be blessed through us. Now, what comes after this, I'm not gonna read, but you probably learned this when you were a little kid. It's the story that first shows the world that God has given Solomon exceptional wisdom. It's the story of, of these two prostitutes. When I learned as a kid, they were just two women. And one has a baby that dies. And, the, and, and in the night, 
switches her dead baby for the baby of her roommate. In the morning, there's this big dispute between the two of them. In that time, the, the tough decisions, the tough cases went all the way up to the king. The king was president and Supreme Court. And he had to make a decision. Who's, whose child is this? Well, they didn't have DNA testing back then. How do we know? How, how do you make this kind of decision? And Solomon says, I'll figure it out. Bring me a sword. We'll cut the child in half and give half to one woman and half to the other. And immediately one woman says, that's fine. If I can't have this baby, then she can't either. And the other says, no, don't kill the baby. Give the child to her. Solomon says, that's the mom. And immediately it says, this is the last verse of, of chapter 3. And all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered. And they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. That case didn't just rule correct. That wasn't just a correct ruling that blessed one family, that brought justice to one family. This was a sign to the nation. This is no ordinary king. God has given him exceptional wisdom. He is going to make good decisions as long as, he's, as, long as he is faithful to God. And the interesting thing is, this is true in companies. This is true in governments. This is true uh, football teams. I don't want to be the coach that follows Nick Saban, right, that retired today. This is true at churches. If you follow, uh, if you follow a pastor who's been there forever and is beloved, you, you generally don't last long. Well, chances are Solomon's not going to last long either because he's not his dad. David won his people's uh, affections and loyalty because he was a fierce warrior who won every battle he fought because he had this fantastic personal charisma. You couldn't help but like him. And because he had this passion for the Lord that led him to write so many of the Psalms and dance before God and, and was just infectious. Well, Solomon doesn't have those things. What he does have is wisdom. He's going to win the people's loyalty and affection by ruling justly, by being a governor, a president, a king who they can count on. He's always going to make the right decision. And that's what this is about. That's what the first three chapters of 1 Kings are about, establishing Solomon on the throne. Now, what do we learn? How is this relevant to our lives? Let me just give you two points of um, application, and then we're done. First thing we learn is our leaders are complicated. Now, I know earlier I said that character is important, and it is. But even the best person who's ever ruled is still just a human being, and they are not God. They are going to make mistakes. They are going to slip up. Not just, not just mental mistakes, not just bad judgments, but sometimes their sin nature is going to get the best of them. I love history. I especially love presidential history. And even my favorite presidents, when you study their lives, you go, ooh, that's not good. He, he didn't do the right thing there. He was not he wasn't as righteous as we wanted him to be. There's some big flaws in, in every leader you can name. And that's true of David, and that's true of Solomon. And we see some of those flaws right here in these first three chapters. Well, what does that mean for us as Christians? If our leaders are complicated humans, it means we, we understand that they're sinful. We don't deify them, right? We don't see them as godlike. We see them as human. And, and that means two things. It means, first of all, we need to pray for them. We need to pray for our leaders including the ones we didn't vote for, maybe especially including those. Uh, pray for them to have wisdom. Pray for them to have moral courage to make 
decisions that maybe won't help them get reelected, but is the right thing in the moment. Uh, pray that they would be physically safe. Pray that their families would be blessed. Pray that God would use them in the world to bring about justice and righteousness and peace. Pray for them, but secondly, hold them accountable. See, we have a privilege that the ancient Israelites didn't have. If you lived in Israel under David or Solomon or any of these kings we're going to study, you didn't have a choice. The king was the king, whether you liked it or not. We have a choice. Our leaders have to listen to us because we live in a representative democracy. We have a privilege, and that means that they have to hear us. They have to hear what we say. Now listen, when I say hold them accountable, I especially mean the ones we did vote for. Because let's face it, if you didn't vote for the guy in office, who's in office at any particular time, well, there's about uh, several hundred million people who already agree with you, who are saying, uh, you know, half the country roughly already doesn't like him and is already criticizing him. So what you say doesn't hold as much weight as if you're a person who actually is on the side that supported him. And yet you come up with, hey, you know, I voted for you, but this isn't right. You know, I support most of your policies, but you are not showing good character. There's a lack of that in American society, I think I can safely say. But what really pains me is there's a lack of it from Christians because we've become just another voting block. And we're not gonna criticize our own guy because we wanna keep him in office. Because if he's not in office, the other guy will win. And boy, then things will really be bad. So we, we paper over, we whitewash his flaws. We refuse to admit that this or that is a bad decision, bad for the country. No, 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 it's all the other side. People are complicated. We need to understand that. We need to hold our rulers accountable. We need to have integrity in the things that we say and do. So that's one point of application. Second point of application, our lives are complicated. You know, Solomon takes the throne. He's a young man. His dad, who has all this experience, says, kill these three people and send this other one out to pasture. Now, I don't think that was right. I think he should have trusted God. I think he should have shown mercy and grace and, and trusted God to put judgment on those men if they did rise up and, and cause trouble. But I'm judging through the lens of the New Testament. Solomon did what he thought was right. And remember, this is before he had prayed for a wise and understanding heart, a listening and obedient heart. Our lives are complicated. Sometimes we're in that position where we don't know what to do. In those moments, I think one of the best things we can do is choose the path of, of Solomon and not the path of Adonijah. Because what did Solomon do? When he finally had a chance to, to act for himself, he went to God and said, Lord, I want to do your will. What did Adonijah do? When he had a chance to, to, make, to act for himself, he said, I want what I want at whatever cost to my family, to my country. I want what I want. I want power. I want glory. Choose the path of Solomon, the path that says, whatever it means, I want to do God's will. Not the path of Adonijah that says, I want to get the things that I want for myself. That's, that's always going to be the struggle. Life is complicated, but ask yourself in every time, is my motive to glorify God and serve others, or is my motive to get what I want out of life? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, 
and all these things will be added unto you. Matthew 6.33. I can help you make almost every decision you have to make. All right. So, uh, yeah, it's pretty standard, about 45 minutes. If you're waiting for kids to get out of your program, I'm sorry. Uh, you can fellowship. There's coffee in the, in the uh, Harrington Hall. But I appreciate y'all being here, and I want to close us in a word of prayer. Lord, I thank you for your word. I pray that we would be people who seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. I pray, Lord, for the leaders of our nation, our city, our state, our county. Lord, they've got a heavy task, and I pray that we would be faithful to pray for them and to uh, encourage them toward the right. And I pray, Lord, use them to bring about righteousness and justice and peace. Lord, we pray all these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.